And we're seeing these movements of, of united prayer that cover the earth. And I, I'm expecting either the second coming of Jesus or the greatest awakening in the history of the earth in the coming years. Welcome to First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and my guest this week is Dr. Bob Bakke on the topic of prayer. If you have a moment this week to go online, I hope you'll take the time to visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. You'll find some new features there as we've recently made some changes. Of course, you can learn more about today's guest and much more at firstpersoninterview.com. Well, in these weekly conversations, we like to explore people's stories, stories of faith and calling in life. Each person we talk to is unique and has something to teach us about how God works in our lives. Today's guest is Dr. Bob Bakke, who is now the teaching pastor at Hillside Church in Bloomington, Minnesota. But Bob has also led both national and global concerts of prayer, many of which I've had the privilege of broadcasting live. He knows both the history of great prayer movements of the past, as well as the power of daily prayer for each of us. So I called Bob recently to catch up. And I asked him if his emphasis on prayer came to him early in his ministry. No, it, it didn't come early. In fact, I was into my second pastorate. I had uh, taken a, a small church in upstate Connecticut, or in the most rural part of, of New England. And it was a church that started. I started with just 18 adults and their kids. And I did that successfully for seven years. We grew it up to about 250 or so, and we bought a barn and uh, changed the barn into a sanctuary and a, and a farmhouse into my offices, etc. I did not know that. Uh, tell, tell us where, because we have some listeners in that area. Yeah, it's, uh, it's up in Woodstock, Connecticut. It's, it's not that Woodstock. That's Woodstock, <laughs> right, New York. Right, right. Um, but it's Woodstock, Connecticut, and it's in the northeast corner of Connecticut, um, near a place called Putnam. It's right on the Massachusetts and Connecticut line. So a lot of uh, old farms, a lot of uh, graveyards that go back, you know, to the 1600s and 1700s, uh, and classic New England churches. And that's, that's where I cut my teeth. I came out of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, which is just north of Boston. And so New England was really on my heart. And maybe, maybe the seeds of, of revival and spiritual awakening and, and the desire for that was seated in my soul while I was at Gordon-Conwell, because well, New England has such a rich history of, of awakening stories and revivals uh, that, that come out of the 18th century. And, of course, those, those really captivate one's imagination when, when one is a student and longing for a great work of, of God in your life over the course of the next you know, 50 years or so. So you're looking out over the, your life and and thinking, well, what what might God do? And the stories of these these townships and these small villages uh, just coming aflame with the, the love of Christ, hmm. I'm sure that had a lot to do with sowing the seeds of uh, my pa- my present day mm-hmm. passions. So you really learned from the history of prayer in that part of the country. I, I did more about the history of revival. I, I really didn't understand the issue with regard to prayer. There was always these, these stories of these great preachers, uh, you know, the George Whitfields and the John Wesleys and great men of the, of the pulpits that uh, 
preached marvelously. And I, I always wanted to be one of those kind of people. I, I'm sure every young person wants to grow up to be a you know, star football player or baseball player. And in the pastorate, you just want to grow up to be one of those star preachers someday. But I never really grasped the issue and the importance of prayer. But in my second pastorate, I was now down in the New York metropolitan area, and I took a church nearer where I grew up. I grew up in the New York metropolitan area. My, all my family was from Brooklyn, New York, on both sides. So I always wanted to go back to New York, and, and this was a great opportunity for me. So in about four, five, six years into my pastorate there, very sophisticated place, very well-to-do, I came across a guy by the name of, of uh, David Bryant. And, of course, he, as so many guys have over the, over the course of the last uh, 30 years or so, and David was preaching in New York at a place called First Baptist Church, First Baptist Church, Flushing, Queens. And if you've ever been to Flushing, Queens, it's it's about as New York City as one could imagine That's New York right. City yeah, being. Sure. And I went to a prayer meeting that he led one night, and it was full. It was like nine hundred people in this prayer. I'd never been in a prayer meeting of nine hundred people before. I didn't think 900 people would be interested in praying together at one time in one place. And the, the meeting began, and we, we, he had us divide up into small groups. Of course, we worshipped, and he called them prayer huddles. And my prayer huddle was uh, a couple of white lawyers from, from Staten Island, um, three uh, African-American women from the Bronx, uh, an Asian couple uh, from, I think, Queens. Then the, the languages. I mean, there were, there were about a 10-block uh, area around First Baptist Flushing is a, a densely uh, and diversely populated area of over 110 languages, just, just in that one neighborhood. And there, many of them reflected in that room that night. I, I just got a sense that this was the closest thing I'd ever come to what heaven is actually going to be like, <laughs> with, with all the languages, with all the colors, with all the sounds, and in the midst of the evening, all the kinds of praying that went on, constant prayer and praise to Christ. Well, well that night, Wayne, changed me. God did something in my heart that night that I left there and was never the same. Hmm. Uh, a sense of his power, a sense of the immediacy of his presence uh, in the prayers of his people. And it changed the way I, I began reading everything. And suddenly, out of the pages of history and the biographies of great men and great preachers I had been, been uh, raised on, I'm seeing all these references to great praying and realizing that these great preachers were so dependent upon great praying. And it changed me from that point on. Now, I just want to stop you there because it, personal prayer, of course, right. is, is something we need to do. But you're talking about a community of praying people together. That's right. There's several different sort of categories of prayer in the Bible. There are these certainly these devotional uh, moments. I just preached on Daniel and the uh, lion's den. Of course, he was caught in those personal times, mm -hmm. three times, 
three times prayer. That was the charge against him. And that was yeah. the charge yeah. against him. And, of course, you have that. And you have Jesus, of course, in his um, early moments in the morning and late at night, getting away with his father. But then you also have the corporate prayer. And perhaps the greatest example of the corporate prayer uh, happened at Pentecost and happened just as Pentecost was about to explode, those 10 days of united prayer before Pentecost. And that whole sense of, of collaboration in prayer is, is perhaps uh, the most misunderstood. Uh, in, Ma- in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about the power of agreement, that if two, two of us would agree as touching something, um, and we ask the Father for it, the, Lord, the Father will give us whatever we ask for. Uh, this, is an, this is an astounding uh, promise. And so to pray in agreement and to pray in union is, is one of the most powerful forces on earth. And I had completely missed this thing for, for many, many years. What happens when we pray together like that? Different people coming together from different cultures even. What, what happens in our spirit? Well, synergy, I guess, is, is, the, is one way you could, you could describe it, that the, the multiplication of our prayers in united prayer becomes a, a much different thing than simply the addition of our prayers as private people. That whole issue of agreement and union in agreement Wayne, is, is what Jesus is after here. Yeah, in John 17, he prays that we would be one. That we would be one. Right. All right. And in Acts, as well, we're told that they prayed, uh, in the Greek, homothumadon is the word, of one mind. Um, and then in Acts 2, after the Holy Spirit was poured out, we're told over and over again, they were together, they were together, they held everything in common, they prayed again, this word, of one mind, over and over again, these early believers showed themselves to be in agreement with regard to the purposes of God and the outpouring of God's Spirit, and, of course, the glory of Christ. And the Lord then added to their number daily those who were being saved. So there's this power that's unleashed in the agreements uh, among the, the body of Christ in prayer. And I think that's, that's, where, that's where the power is, because... Uh, Jesus is saying, if you, if you act like my body in agreement and you pursue me with one mind, there is an extraordinary promise that goes along with that that is not given to you when you pray simply by yourself. More lessons about prayer from our guest today, Bob Bakke, coming up on First Person. When you join us next week on First Person, you'll hear a very personal story of racial reconciliation. So, you know, the surprises of, um, of letting go, of, of moving from the known to the unknown, and the new life that God, that God gives you in that is a beautiful thing. We'll talk with the author of Grace Matters, Chris Rice, next time on First Person. Talking with Dr. Bob Bakke on First Person. Bob, I want to get to your activity in leading the global day of prayer, which is so important for our world today. But I want to go back to the historical again. I know you 
have studied great prayer revivals of the past. Would you take just one or two episodes that you've learned and and uh, teach us from that history lesson how that applies to us today? Well, let me let me tell you a story that I think would be of great interest, especially right now, uh, to all your listeners. And it's about what we call the Second Great Awakening in America. And in fact, it was the first Great Awakening after we became a country. What the historians call the First Great Awakening happened back in our colonial days in the 1730s and 40s. But I want to talk to you just for a moment about 1800, or actually the 1790s. And let me set it up this way. See if any of them ring a bell. Okay. It was after eight years of war, the country was in trouble. <laughs> there was great national doubts about our future. We had superpowers on our borders, France and England. We had a truce with them, but there wasn't a sense of peace, and, the, and war would break out again, if you remember, yeah. the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. We had pirates and terrorists creating havoc within our populations. Boy, we don't know our history, do we? <laughs> we, we don't. Uh, we had pirates off the coast that were taking our ships as soon as we left Britain. Now England would no longer protect our shipping lanes. By the end of the 1790s, Wayne, we were, the, the national treasury was paying up to one-third of its annual budget to, to North African Muslim pirates for the ransoming of our ships and, and the protection of our shipping lines. And uh, eventually, uh, Jefferson would go to war against these pirates, uh, and it would be actually the first military campaign mm-hmm. of our new country. The shores of Tripoli. The yeah. shores of Tripoli. Yeah. Uh, we, were, we were bankrupt as a country, and if Alexander Hamilton hadn't argued persuasively not to default we would have defaulted on our international obligations. We had plagues in the land, plagues that were killing tens of thousands of people across these years in the major metropolitan centers. In fact, the plagues were so bad in Philadelphia, where our capital was, that during the spring and summer months, they would move the capital from Philadelphia to Trenton, New Jersey, to get away from the shores of the Delaware, where they thought the plagues were coming from, some of the plagues were coming from. The French were scaring us, uh, especially with their Al-Qaeda-like uh, cells uh, in, our, in our population. We were afraid of their, them as terrorists because we were watching France uh, devolve into a reign of terror after their revolution, and we were fearful that that reign of terror would be imported here. We had riots in our cities and, and, you know, this Occupy Wall Street stuff. Uh, We had federal troops being sent out into major metropolitan areas to quell anarchy and rebellion. There was a political rancor, the newspapers. If you want to see editorials that are really bad, go back into the 1790s and and the early part of the 1800s. They were terrible. They they ripped each other to shreds. They made up lies about each other, and they they, they threw mud at each other. Because they were essentially owned by the political parties. So against those perilous times, and obviously the parallels to today are chilling, but against those times, then there there arose the Second Great Awakening. That's right. Through prayer? That's right. The churches were empty. Universalism, Unitarianism were coming in. Uh, The the colleges were abandoning religion. Yale, that was set up for 
to train pastors could only find like four or five confessing believers in, a, in, a, in an entire student population. So what do you do in the face of all this? Well, the pastors began calling themselves to movements of united prayer. This letter-writing campaign started moving all over the place. And little by little, and then uh, associations and denominations start calling their, their folks to prayer. And this prayer movement began emerging throughout the states. But the greatest work was out in the frontier at, at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And that is after a, a sustained period of time where United Prayer was, was at the heart of the church for three, four years, uh, leading up to 1800, 1801, and the churches gathering out in open fields to have communion together. And back then, communion was a three-day affair. You came for one day, and you had self-examination. And the second day, a pastor would examine your life to see if you were, in fact, worthy of taking communion. And the next day, you could take the table of the Lord. Hmm. Well, these things started populating uh, the, the uh, frontier, and large crowds began moving from one place to the other where these sacraments were taking place until you came to a, a, a completely nothing place called Cane Ridge. I mean, it's out in the middle. If you go there today, it's still out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> well, on that day, in 1801, 30,000 people showed up oh. from all over the frontier, some of these people had come from a hundred miles uh, because there was this rumor that the moving of the Lord was happening, uh, and they they came on their wagons. It was only supposed to be a three-day affair, but it ended up to be about a week, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on this place to such a degree that the only reason why they split up was was they ran out of food and they and the sanitation was so bad. So here it is, Cane Ridge, Kentucky, out in the middle of nowhere. 30,000 people show up, including African slaves and governors and mayors and senators and so on, and God poured out his spirit on the place to such a degree, well, it was like a thermonuclear explosion in the heart of the church. At any time of, of these days, Wayne, up to 30% of the people who were there were unconscious on the ground under the influence of the Holy Spirit's reign. Mm. And this is a hundred years before the Pentecostal mm -hmm. revivals in Los Angeles. But it was at a time of great need in our nation. Tremendous need in this nation. Well, to make a long story short, out of that revival, and the revival was also breaking out across the other states as well, and, and in, in the course of about ten years, the country was fundamentally and radically transformed. I hope you see that as a story of great hope. Oh, yeah, and we don't know this history. We don't know this history. And I know you're working uh, to, to alleviate that. Uh, for one thing, you're, you're working on a documentary film, right? Right, that's right, uh, called America's Pentecost is what we're going to call it. it, it uh, in fact, a, Paul Conklin, who's a church historian at uh, Vanderbilt University, coined the phrase uh, as he looked at this period. But Mark Knoll... Uh, historian mm -hmm. at uh, Notre Dame uh, said the same thing about this period. This this revival fundamentally changed the course of human history, and uh, particularly our national history. 
so much came out hospitals, schools, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And you've only told us one single story, and I know there are many others. And, and Bob, these lessons, and you tell them so well, uh, but these lessons can just ignite that, that flame again if we listen and if we obey. And, and you believe it starts again with concerts of prayer, people getting together and praying together, even globally. That's right. And you're right. And one of my visions and my life's verse has been Habakkuk 2.14, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we're seeing this, these movements of, of united prayer cover the earth. And I'm expecting either the second coming of Jesus or the greatest awakening in the history of the earth in the coming years. Uh, I really do, Wayne. I'm, I'm that confident. Uh, in fact, uh, with regard to the, the former, in 1749, Jonathan Edwards, who was the great hero of the First Great Awakening, wrote in his uh, memoirs that he believed that the second coming of Christ, the kingdom of, of the Lord, would come uh, on, on a movement of united prayer across the nations of the earth as he exegeted Ezekiel and Revelation, etc., Revelation chapter 8 especially, uh, that the Lord would come on a movement of united prayer, sweeping the face, the face of the earth, and it would happen sometime after the year 2000. Hmm. And that, was, that, was, that was 1749. No, but, we're not setting any dates here today. But. <laughs> that's right. So uh, that excites me. So whether we're talking about a local community, and I'm a, a pastor in a local church now who prays with other local guys, and we're seeing the hand of the Lord beginning to move here in my own hometown, or uh, as, I, as I helped a few years ago with the Global Day of Prayer that happens every year on Pentecost, that is now in, every, in 220 nations of the earth and hundreds of millions of believers that are participating. Whether you're talking about local or you're talking about na- uh, global and, and international, uh, the phenomenon is, is remarkably the same. It starts with with God's people in desperate hunger for God, knowing that they are powerless without the might of heaven, seeking God in the name and the glory of Christ for the outworking of his purposes in history. I love talking with Dr. Bob Bakke and glad that you could hear him today on First Person. Obviously, he believes in the power of prayer and revival, and he's someone who's taught me much about it. In addition to working with the Global Day of Prayer, Bob is the teaching pastor at Hillside Church in Bloomington, Minnesota. If you'd like additional information, you'll find it at our website, firstpersoninterview.com. An additional resource you'll find at the website is our audio archive of past program interviews. They're all available to you at firstpersoninterview.com, along with a calendar of upcoming guests and topics. Plus, you can leave your feedback on any interview you hear on First Person on our Facebook page. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash firstpersoninterview. First Person is also available as a podcast, and you can subscribe automatically at iTunes. Next week, our guest will be Chris Rice, the director of the Center for Reconciliation at Duke Divinity School. Chris has a personal story of racial reconciliation, and you'll hear him tell it next week when you join us. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for listening today, and we'll see you next week at the same time for First Person. First Person.